Holy Father, as sing to you, and God, I hate to admit that I, I pray this for me, uh, as I know what tends to distract me from what this morning is really about, and I know what tends to get in the way of even me enjoying coming closer to you, and that's sometimes the distractions of a not-quite-perfect service, whether it be my words or technology what have you. Help me to believe sometimes that as I, as I often pray with the people serving in the morning, that if everything goes perfectly well, may it be for your glory. If we crash and burn and everything goes wrong, we're still here for your glory. And you are still able to work in us and hear our songs and hear our prayers and work in our hearts and stir us to conviction when we read your words. Help me and anyone else who needs this to not get caught up sometimes in the details of superficialness or things which we have tried and don't go quite right. But help us to always be in the moment of who you are, of what you can and will and do in the midst of us despite our best efforts not to acknowledge that. And stir us and stir your church and stir your people in such a way that we know it can only come from you. Our aesthetics and our efforts are for your glory, God. But they're no match for it. Let us see and seek you in all we do. Let us see and seek you in every part of the service this morning. And may we see and seek you as we depart from this place back to our lives. May we be your people that bring your kingdom, celebrated here and now, relished in it, encouraged by it, convicted by it, but then bring it out into the rest of the world this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good to see you all this morning. Thank you. I really mean it. I don't just say that because, oh, it's nice to thank you. I really mean it. I love part of my particular job that I get to stand up here and I get to see you all. I get to see who's here and, uh, and be encouraged by that. And even before I got up here, I see um, the number of people watching VR streaming, and I'm encouraged by that. Uh, I sometimes worry, in a sense, that I have some of the most I have the most encouraging part of the church, <laughs> job in the church, which I'll take it, you know. <laughs> but it's good to see you this morning, and it's good to see you on this day that we delve into a text, which in all honesty, um, there's not a lot out there on this text. There's not a lot out there on Matthew 10. And if you read a lot of commentaries on it, it's apparent that there's a lot of division on what people think about it because not a lot of people know what to do with it. Is this to the apostles? Is this to us? Is it... I'm going to throw some words out that if it doesn't mean anything to you, that's fine. Is it dispensational? Is it about the second coming? Is it about tribulation? Who knows? So that was my task this week to go and say, why did I assign this? To? Well, because it's in Matthew, so we preach it. If it's in the Bible, we preach it. So the trick, not trick, but the thing is with this text, which is interesting, is that it is very apparent that there are some interesting things about this text that we have to address. And there are a couple ways to approach it. One is this way, not your head in water out of exasperation or anything. And no, this isn't a, a, a metaphor for baptism. This is actually a hyper-realistic graphite drawing. 
believe it or not, by a man named Giacarmo Berrettini uh, called Apnoe. Apnoia. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. It's Italian, so I apologize to any Italian speakers out there uh, who I just massacred that. Um, but this is a hyper-realistic drawing of a man ducking his face in water. There's this way to approach it. Or uh, there's this way, which I drew this stick figure, and he's not happy that I drew him because he barely recognizes he's a stick figure. Uh, my stick figures are, are very surly that I drew them to such horribleness, and so... I say this to say, not to make light of the text, but this is how we tend to approach these kinds of scriptures, which we're not quite sure what to do with either. Hyper-detailed and focus on every detail and try to knock it apart, tear it apart, and try to get at it. Or we do a glaze over in a sense, we acknowledge it, and we move on. Well, we're not going to do that this morning. But neither are we going to do something in the sense that I recognize Matthew does, in that reference details and reference things that really have no meaning to us. For example, if I put this image up here, well, sorry, I, I'm already doing it to myself. We could either go super detailed and, or, let me rephrase that. We're going to look at what Matthew details and what he focuses on. And so it's not going to be hyper detailed. The details he does give us, we're going to look at and acknowledge, but we're also going to look at the focus of Matthew, which is a particular focus. And the details and the focus that Matthew has is much, in this chapter, like me just putting this image up there. Offhand, someone take a guess what this is. You'll probably get it. It's a bulldog. Okay, sorry. I should have... What does this bulldog represent? What is this image? Take a guess. Someone could probably guess it. It's a mascot. It's a high school mascot. This chapter, to delve into it really detailed, or to glance over it, has the temptation of doing this, where I can just put a, detail, uh, a bulldog up, explain it, go into it, how it affects it, and it doesn't mean anything to you, although it means a lot to me. This is actually my Highland, uh, my high school mascot, Highland Bulldogs. We have a sculpture of a bulldog in the, auto, in the gymnasium named something. I don't remember what his name was, so if anyone's from Highland watching, you know, I doubt it, but what was his name? I, can't, I was trying to rack my brain all morning to remember. doesn't matter this up and talk about it, but it doesn't mean anything to you. It can mean something to me. But it doesn't mean much to you. You explain it. And even if I go into great detail about how I graduated in 2007 and I took these courses and, and Highlands for this in, in Southern Illinois and, and, and all this, you, you'd understand it, right? But it doesn't, it doesn't mean much to you. You go, oh, that's interesting. We want to take the approach of acknowledging the detail Matthew gives us, but also of the focus that he gives us. And the important thing to realize is that the details that Matthew gives us in this chapter are not for us, but they're for the Jews in the society in which Jesus is sending out the twelve and Matthew finds himself in. There are very specific Jewish details in this that really only will mean something to you if you were a Jew. There are even a few commands. That only apply to you if you were a Jew in that time. Not all the commands, and not all the details, but some. Also have to keep in mind that the focus of this passage is the twelve apostles. Now, I emphasize the because I want to make a quick note on what apostle means. Apostle, apostolos, simply means messenger or messengers. 
And so while the focus is the, are the twelve apostles, and the details that Matthew gives us are for the Jews in that society, there is a sense in which all of this still applies to any messenger of Jesus' gospel, i.e., you and me. So all of this is to say, it's a very big lead-up and to say how I'm going to approach this text. Because there are some things in here which people have gotten riled up about. There are some things in here which, which have caused dissension and caused you know, high emotions. And we're, we're going to try to respect it by focusing on the principles of the text. Not all the details, not trying to identify the focus and what applies to that, but the big principles of the text. And in my estimation, this is always a safe way to approach Scripture because what are principles? Principles are eternal truths that do not change regardless of who is reading them, who is applying them, or when. So if you find the principles of these kind of texts, that's a good place to be. Sound good? You're like, choice? <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> no, you don't. But uh, Yes, you do, but no, you don't. Thank you for being here once again. <laughs> Matthew 10, 1-4, as Eric already read. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. And the names of the twelve apostles are these. Simon, Peter, Andrew, James of Zebedee, John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed them. There are some details about these lists. They're only listed a couple times in the Gospels. They're almost always listed in the same order. And if they're not exactly the same order, Judas is always listed last, Simon's always first. But what does this tell us? It tells us, thinking big picture, I'm actually going to go from the bottom up, that one, they're the ordinary people that Jesus calls. We can delve into all of the jobs of these gentlemen. One was a tax collector, one was a revolutionary zealot, four were fishermen, a few are not quite sure about. But they were ordinary people. They were also a diverse set of people. Obviously, Matthew, as I mentioned last week, Matthew and uh, Simon the Zealot were crossways. <laughs> we had a set of brothers, a set of brothers, and the people who weren't. We had Judas, who we debate whether he really was ever invested or not, so we don't know his thing. They were a diverse group of people, but they were ordinary people. And what were they sent out to do? They were sent out on a mission which I want you to notice this about the text. They were sent out on a mission that they could not hope to accomplish on their own. They were sent out on a mission that to say, here, go do this by yourself, would be absolutely foolhardy, would be absolutely ridiculous, would probably get them killed. But they were ordinary people sent out. They were ordinary, dare I say, weak, imperfect people that were sent out to do this mission. And the third thing I want you to notice about this mission, and he called them to what? He gave them authority over clean spirit, unclean spirits, to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. What was the mission that they were sent out to do? They were sent out to do, in essence, the kingdom of God. Do you see that? They weren't just sent out in order to, to do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. They were sent out to do the very thing that Jesus came to do. So our first thing, that big picture-wise of this section, Jesus' messenger's mission is to replicate and extend the mission of Jesus. Note, not just to proclaim, but to demonstrate it to the world. They were sent out not to just talk about the kingdom of God, but to cast out, to clean, to heal, to do. Weak, ordinary people. 
People who couldn't have a hope and a prayer of doing anything on their own worthwhile, as far as the kingdom goes. Jesus extends His very mission, His very kingdom, His very job, to an extent, to the messengers of His kingdom, to replicate and extend, to not just proclaim, but demonstrate it to the world. One of the things I want to focus on here and I want to make note of is that many of us are good in one or two areas. Some of us are better at proclaiming, or our version of proclaiming, which is to yell at someone over Facebook or social media. Others are good at demonstrating it, serving. What I want to challenge you with is that there's a both and here. You can't do one without the other, but you can also do one without doing the other. Meaning, serving, as we'll get to at the end of this chapter, serving and doing something good, if not in the name of Jesus, thing, and Jesus says it's a good thing, is not kingdom work. Likewise, simply proclaiming something to someone and not demonstrating the character of the kingdom, dare I say, is also at least incomplete kingdom work. As messengers of Jesus, any messengers of Jesus, whether you're the twelve or the however many in history, we need to have a holistic view of Jesus' kingdom. We need to have the complete picture of what it means to replicate and extend Jesus' mission. To proclaim, but also demonstrate. To tell, but also show. To talk, but also to walk. The kingdom of God. That could be a sermon right there, and we could delve into that. But if that's all I do, we're going to be talking Matthew for the next five years, which I'm okay with. Maybe not. <laughs> Moving on, Jesus says, These twelve Jesus sent and instructed them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Notice what he says there. Not coming, not near, not close, but is here. How can they say that? Because they are doing the kingdom. They are living the kingdom. They are being the kingdom. They are showing the kingdom. It all works together. And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Kingdom work. You receive without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. No bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff for the laborer deserves his food. So let's stop right there and actually, let's just focus on a couple of things. Let's focus on the first little bit here. Jesus' prohibition uh, to go only to the lost house of Israel. One, as you can imagine, since Gentiles did come into the fold <laughs> in Acts 10, and aren't all of you glad, that this is obviously something that was temporary. But there's a principle behind it which I think is still valid. Notice what he says. Notice he says, go nowhere among the Gentiles. He never said, don't go to the Gentiles. What you see here is that Jesus is giving a geographic restriction, not an ethnic restriction. A geographic restriction. What I mean by that is that here is a map of Israel, roughly. Here is Jerusalem down here. Here is Nazareth. Here is Capernaum. Uh, in between here is Samaria, which was Gentile country, over to the east, uh, in, around the area of Bethany, especially over here to the Capitalists, where the demons and the pigs were. The area of Israel was surrounded in some senses and bombarded and interspersed with Gentile country. Jesus is not saying, don't 
proclaim the kingdom to any Gentile. After all, he's actually already healed a Gentile and interacted with a Gentile and given him a gift of the kingdom, Jesus has. What he's saying is that don't go specifically into those places that are Gentile. Why? Well, there's a couple reasons we can postulate. One, there's a good chance that as Jews, they weren't ready to cross those cultural barriers yet. I mean, even Peter, which most Peter's been through, he had the dream from God, and God and Peter was like, God, are you sure? And God's like, Peter, we've been through this a couple dozen times already. Just go. Thomas revised version. Peter did protest three times. Even Peter wasn't ready, and even Peter messed up afterwards. Paul had to call him out by saying, you, you're, you're sticking with the Jews. Go back to the Gentiles. And Peter hopefully was like, this took a lot of work. But I think there's a bigger principle that actually still applies here to us as well. Is it bad to go to the other side of the world? Not at all. It's awesome. Is it bad to do things which reach people we don't know personally? No, it's awesome. But what I think we can learn from this is that there is value in starting our own personal evangelism where you are already and where your sphere of influence already is. I've said it before. It's easier to talk to someone you don't know who speaks another language or talk to someone you don't know at the supermarket about Jesus or talk to someone you don't know. It's much harder to talk to your neighbor who knows you're a Christian and you know they're not. It's much harder to talk to your family member who knows you're a Christian and they're not. It's much harder to talk about this in your own sphere of influence. That's exactly why you need to do it. The kingdom does not give us the option of avoiding the hard work. And plus... Who can reach those people better than you? You think, I'm not harping on anyone, but I have been asked, I don't know how many times, 15 or 20, Greg can probably say the same thing, Josh would be, you need to talk to my so-and-so to get him saved in the church. And I'm going, you really think they care what I have to say? Who's obviously a preacher and who obviously has a bias? <laughs> you know what, I've tried. You know what I've gotten almost every single time? Half of them have met with me just out of courtesy. One guy put it straight. As soon as I sat down, he said, look, I'm not interested in what you have to say. I don't know you, but if you want to talk about something other than Bible, okay. I mean, in a sense, kudos for being blunt. We knew where we stood. We had a nice hour-long coffee. We talked about a various array of things, not Bible. I said, thanks for your time. Went on his way. He didn't care about me. Who is in the best position to reach those in your sphere? You are. Not your elders. Not your minister. Not your deacons. You are. Now that's not an excuse. I obviously will do what I can for you, whatever I can do. But it's not going to substitute for you. Moving on. Jesus tells them, you receive without paying, so give without pay. A gold or silver, a copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, no two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who's worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. 
This is where we get into some of those details. And I'm not afraid of details, but this would mean a whole lot more to you than that time. There's Old Testament language behind this. There is cultural language behind this about shaking your dust off your feet, about letting your peace come upon it, letting your peace leave it, which is not bad. And I invite you, scour the commentary, scour Google, scour Blue Letter Bible if you want to know some of these details. Dude, that's not my focus today. What is my focus? The principles. The apostles were to live simply, in essence, to distinguish several things. One, they were to distinguish themselves. They were to distinguish themselves from several other wandering preachers or disciples, if you will. Rabbis had their own following. Uh, what would make Jesus' distinct? Well, in one case, they were known as the people who had nothing. <laughs> Poor people. <laughs> it's a way to distinguish themselves. But also to distinguish themselves, to distinguish their mission, which was what? The kingdom of God that is utterly and completely dependent on God. You see, by bringing nothing with them, what did it say about their trust in the God who would provide? What did it say to themselves? What did it say to each other? What did it say to the people that, that came through them, that, came, that encountered them? Don't you have a staff to protect yourself? No, I trust God will provide because he sent me. There's two responses. You go, well, you're crazy, or, whoa, you're crazy. I want to hear more. But also, interestingly enough, is to distinguish the hearers. As a messenger of God, as a messenger of Jesus, to receive these messengers would be to receive Jesus himself. And there's cultural background for this, as I said. So, the state of how the hearers would receive these messengers is indicative, in essence, of how they would receive Jesus himself. How they would receive the kingdom message from Jesus himself. And it tells a great deal about the hearers, doesn't it? I want nothing from you. Get out of here. But I think this teaches us, in principle, is something very applicable. How do we live and act to distinguish ourselves, our mission, our God, and our hearers? Now, maybe the last one's a little bit blunt, because doesn't everyone deserve to hear the gospel? Yes! But there is a principle about, look, if you've tried 17 times, I know I just said go to your neighbors, I know I just said go to your people, but if you tried 17 times and people are absolutely rejecting you and they're rejecting God, what does Jesus say? Dust off your feet and move on. Let God do His work in ways that you can't. What does it say about our lifestyle? I'm not advocating a life of poverty. I'm not advocating a life of riches. But people give and live according to how they've been blessed. But what do, what does our lifestyle say about ourselves and our trust in God? What does our lifestyle and our daily life say about our mission? Maybe not God's mission sometimes, but what does it say about our mission? Is it really to proclaim the kingdom of God at hand, to replicate and demonstrate the kingdom, or is it something else? What does that say about our God and our trust in Him? I don't know anyone who carries a staff regularly, so I can't say you ought to carry a staff. Although, it does make you feel pretty cool. 
I have care to staff when I've been in plays and such. I never want to stop. That and a cloak. I wish cloaks would come back into fashion. That's just me. Weirdo. Yeah. Those are the things that don't exactly apply. What are the principles? We must be aware of how our life distinguishes us, distinguishes our mission, distinguishes our trust and our mission in God, and by that and through that and for that, be aware of how that response distinguishes our hearers and those who look at us and react to us as they might react to God. And there's discernment and wisdom that goes on here. But it's something to keep in mind. Behold, Jesus says, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Probably one of the most famous passages in this passage. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious of how you are to speak or what you are to say, or what you are, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and the children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated for all my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now, that's a lot. There are actually three distinct little sections in this passage. The first verse, the middle here, and then the last. About being wise and innocent, about what to say, and what persecution. Let's start with the first one, obviously. Well-known passage. Be innocent as doves and wise as serpents. I came across this one. I really enjoy it. Bah, bah, bah. Woof! I mean, bah. All right, who said that? If only it were that simple. Notice here what it says. Notice it doesn't say that you will find wolves among you. There are other passages which say that. And there's much to be said about wolves that come into the flock and how we are to treat those wolves. And it's pretty in your face. Notice what it says here. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. The sheep are the ones sent out. The sheep are the ones purposely, purposefully to be walking through the wolves. How do you act? How does a, how does a prey animal act in the midst of predators? Well, you don't want to cause too much of a disturbance. You don't want to intentionally seek out conflict because you might lose. But you begin to learn how to act, how to live, what to say, what not to say in a way that's most beneficial. I think the principle here is fairly similar. How are we to act when we're in the midst of the world? How are we to act, especially when those who are seeking Christianity to take it down? Notice what it says here. It says, Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. I think this is telling us not to intentionally provoke conflict with opponents but act as such in a way that remains pure and in a sense unthreatening among wolves. What do I mean by that? Let me address one extreme then the other. 
There's a popular line of thought for the last 20 years that the kingdom of God, especially in the United States of America, needs to be defended. And that if Christians don't stand for the kingdom, then what will happen to the church and what will happen to the kingdom of God? Let me ask you a question. Has Jesus ever needed anyone to defend his kingdom? Does Jesus and God really need you to defend the kingdom of God? Now, I didn't say it's a good idea sometimes. I said need. Does he need you to stand up and say provocative things and call people out in a way that provokes conflict? Does he need you to defend the kingdom? No. He never has and he never will. In all honesty, we're not that important. The kingdom of God will not rise and fall based on our defense of it. It may rise and fall, however, on acting in such a way that keeps people open to hearing and seeing the kingdom of God. This is, I think, the point of this passage. Not that you go through, here's the other extreme, not that you go through and don't see anything. We even talked about it this morning, I think, that we need to be ready to proclaim, that we need to be ready to speak, that we need to be ready and hold firm in what we believe. But it never says go out and pick a fight. <laughs> it never says go out and... I could go on and on. I think you get the picture. It never says go out and provoke. It says know how to act with people but remain innocent and pure. Harmless, some translations say. Why? Well, Matthew continues. Why? Beware of men, because they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in synagogues. This would mean something to you if you're a Jew. If you were a public servant or if you were someone causing ruckus, you would literally be flogged in front of the synagogue. The synagogue was the place, the church in the time, was the place in which justice was administered. How nice. I say something bad, in the olden days you could have brought me out here and flogged me in the parking lot. Some of you would like that way too much. You'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. What is he saying there? He's saying that persecution and conflict will come already. You don't need to invite it. But when that comes, because you're not going around picking fights, you're not going around provoking people, when that comes, Jesus says to the twelve, the Spirit will help you with what you're saying and what to say. He goes on to say, conflict is going to come. In fact, my word, the result of following, the basic result of following me, not your actions, not your conflict, not you throwing a Bible at someone, the, the result of following me will be conflict, persecution, brother against brother, the father and the child, the children against parents. You'll be hated. In essence, I think he's saying, look, you're going to have conflict enough without having to to provoke it. You're going to have conflict enough without throwing a gospel grenade in the middle of somewhere. So what's he saying? I think he's saying something very specific to the twelve, and we all, most of us know the questions of how the twelve died. All of them more or less died traditionally uh, in martyrdom. Peter famously being crucified upside down for the name of Jesus. They lived it out. As much as some people want to proclaim it, I don't. I'm personally not afraid of getting killed because of my faith tomorrow or the next day or this week or this month. Maybe it's coming. I'm not there yet. 
But what does this say to us? The principle, I think, says, still rely on what God and the Spirit has taught you to say to those you speak to, whether it's in persecution or whether it's simply whenever you talk to someone. So many people I talk to are say, well, if someone asks me a question I don't know, what do I say? You know what? I don't know is a valid answer. Let me get back to you. If nothing else, though, say whatever you know to be true. Say how you address those things. Rely on what the Spirit has already taught you. And I think the principle here is that God says that's good. Rely on the fact that you do know something about God. You do know something about Jesus. No matter if it's someone asking you, whether it's someone persecuting you, you can say what you know. Evangelism is nothing more than telling someone you know what you know about Christ. That's all. And out of that, we do need to have a firm stand in what is true and not be afraid to insist upon it. Not to provoke, not to pick a fight, but we cannot be afraid to insist on our faith when it's beneficial, when it's wise. Because that reveals if we seek the reverence of people or the reverence of God. There are times when it is tough. There are times when you are confronted. There are times, not necessarily physically in our, in our country yet, but there are times when you're confronted by your faith. And yes, there are times when we're tempted to lie or tempted to, to, to bend in our faith. Those are the times, principally, that we need to insist on what we know is true. It doesn't mean we go pick a fight. Lastly, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. They have called the master of the house visible. How much more are they malign those of his household? This is simply saying that because of Jesus, because of Jesus, conflict will come. Not because he throws a bomb, but because he's Jesus, because he's Messiah, because he speaks truth. Conflict will come. He says, out of that, have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what, I, what you hear whisper, proclaim on the housetops. Let's just stop there right now. I think it is like this because there's literally nothing to explain about this. In, Judy, in the Jewish days, the housetops were high enough and but low enough that to go on top actually gave you a better um, arena in which to speak. Your voice would carry, you'd reach more people. So literally, this passage is saying, go shout it from the mountains. Go shout it from the rooftops. Up on the housetop, Jesus calls. I don't know if you want to do this. I don't know if it's wise in our society. People might think the wrong thing of you versus the right thing. But what's the principle here? It's saying we cannot be afraid to speak what is true. Why? Because the worst that they in that time can do is kill you. He's talking to D12 now. The worst that anyone in this life could do is kill you. Now we might go, that sounds pretty bad. But look at what he says. Rather for here who can destroy both soul and body. The worst, the worst that anyone in this world can do is kill you to the apostles. But God will resurrect you and sustain you for eternity. Death got nothing on you. Talk about a faith statement. But Matthew continues, Are you not two, sparrow, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Less than an hour's wage in that society. Two, perils, two sparrows. And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. 
Even on the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than sparrows. He's saying no matter what happens to the twelve, in this case, he is talking to the rest of us, no matter what happens in this world, no matter what people do to you, God cares for you. He will take care of you. You are more valuable than a sparrow that he takes care of. Why do you fear these people that can only do so much to you? Now, he's talking to these people about death. And we struggle with people just saying no to us. I'm not trying to guilt you or shame you, but I'm saying look at what they're being taught versus what we realistically have to deal with. If we talk to someone, hey, do you want to hear about Jesus? No, not really. Okay. I don't want to say this flippantly, but if you do it enough, the nose. Having somebody reject Christ will never not bother you, but the nose get easier to handle. Because you know it's not you they're rejecting, but Christ. It's a weird way of encouraging, but it's true. God cares for you. What can anyone on this earth do to you that is greater than what God does for you? The last thing he says here, though, is, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is the verse that preachers don't like to talk about. Because we go, what do we do with that? Well, there's not much you do with it besides preach it and say, that's what Jesus says, guys. <laughs> what do you do with this? Well, believe it. But how do you reconcile that with such, such a merciful and graceful God? Well, Jesus said it back in the Sermon on the Lord, Lord, chapter 7, verse 22. Did we not do miracles for you? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not do all these amazing things for you? I never knew you. Jesus has already set the precedent for people who don't have the whole picture, who don't want to commit fully to his kingdom and only want the benefit or the glory. This sounds harsh, but it makes sense. Would you want to be married to someone who never talked to you to their friends or family, who never gloated and complimented you in front of other people, who never wanted to be seen with you in public? Christ is married to his church. It makes sense. But we also have to keep in mind the story of Peter. Peter, who over and over and over put his big rock foot in his mouth constantly. Lord, I will die for you. Get behind me, Satan, Peter. You don't know what you're talking about. Talk about that in Matthew 16. Peter will deny me three times. I will not, Lord. A day later, I did, Lord. I did. The story of Peter tells us that while not what Christ wants, there is still repentance. How do you reconcile these two things? I, it's above my pay grade to tell you how to do that. All I know is that both are true. But to deny God and deny Christ... The dangerous thing. 
flow together. And you still get this. What does Jesus say? He says, Go out and do my mission. Do out and do what I ask of you to do. Yes, even you who are weak and helpless because you have my power. Live a certain way to distinguish yourselves and distinguish those who hear. Go out. Be smart about how you do this. Don't pick fights with the wolves, but be smart. Because believe me, you're going to have enough trouble as it is. But don't worry about that trouble. Because as much trouble as the world can give to you, God can take care of you in greater ways. But remember, if you deny me, there is a consequence. We stop in the middle of this passage and we pick up next week with Jesus delving more into those consequences. But yet, here is where we pause for this week. And we consider, what is it What is it like for us to replicate and extend the mission of Jesus with these principles found in this text that were given explicitly to 12 people so long ago, but yet still apply to us in many, many ways? Brothers and sisters, I do challenge us this week with this passage as a foundation, with the warnings and the encouragements, all of them. I challenge us to really look at what does it mean to extend the mission of Jesus, to replicate it this week in our lives, going out like those apostles, going out as 21st century messengers. What does it mean to proclaim but also demonstrate the kingdom of God with the assurance of God's care with us? The question we have to ask daily, the question that the world will not ask, but the question that the church has been tasked with and will until Christ returns. Let us be the ones who are modern day messengers for Christ in every way possible. Let us accept that challenge with open arms in the power of God.